it's been in the wings for a very, very long time. I think I first heard about it a year ago. I think it was like in December when I first heard about it. And then I went to build ratification, et cetera, Queens Park. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Welcome back. It's Sarah Larby. You are listening to Where Should I Invest? And uh, thank you for being an avid listener. I really appreciate it. And one of the things I will say is today's episode is going to be critical. If you are a landlord investing in anything long-term related where the landlord and tenant rules apply, I am introducing you guys to my paralegal, Andrew Chubetta, who covers the entire province of Ontario. And I will tell you, Andrew has changed my life because now all I really want to do is midterm rentals, short-term rentals, and you'll see why on this episode. One of the things I'm going to reach out to you guys for and ask for some help. So this is going to be the really creative fun part. I'm actually building a resort in the Corthas, which I think many of you probably have heard about at some point, and it is called Inspire Beach Resort. So here's what we are doing. We are creating a really, really nice upscale, adults only, I think it's going to be 16 plus, and we're going to create a nice area where there's going to be a bunch of cottages. I think the city has given us the green light for like 15 of them. And the one thing I want to do is I want to theme them all different. So I still want them to be very like high end and upscale, but I want them to be themed different. So here's an example, like maybe one could be like a sip and savor, or like a wine theme. Maybe one could be like a Paris theme. I'm just throwing out ideas. Doesn't mean that's going to be what it is. But if you have some really cool theme ideas, send me a quick email or Instagram investor, Sarah Larby. Let me know. I'm actually working with one, an amazing designer and, uh, and somebody who's been, you know, in the industry for a while doing a lot of design. So I've, I've tasked her as well to come up with at least four because four is going to be what we're going to have to get started. And then we're going to add about four each year as well. So if you have cool theme ideas that you think will work as a resort concept, so each cottage ideally is different. I don't want to have the same theme in different cottages because I think it'd be fun if someone stays at one to be like, hmm, I wonder what the other ones are like. We'll try that next time. So something fun, something unique. If you have a good theme idea, let me know. And on that note, I hope you guys enjoy the podcast today with Andrew Chubetta, an awesome paralegal and my paralegal that I use personally at this point in time. So I hope you guys enjoy the show. Don't forget to leave a rating and review. Thanks so much. Andrew, welcome to the show. How are you? Doing very well. How are you doing? Good. So you have become my go-to you know, person that I reach out to if I have any tenant questions, <laughs> landlord questions, and a paralegal that covers essentially all of Ontario. Before we get into the, the paralegal piece, uh, we were just having a conversation offline before we started recording. And I said, oh, you know, what kind of an investments do you have? And you were talking about Ethiopia. So maybe before we yeah. get into even that, just give us a little <laughs> bit of an overview of, of what you do, how you got started in real estate, and then we'll go from there. Oh yeah. Okay. So overview of what I do is I'm, I'm a paralegal here in Ontario. So I do a lot of, I specialize mainly like in landlord and tenant board matters, just predominantly what I do. So a lot of uh, tenant eviction, a lot of non-payment of rent, a lot of issues, you know, uh, N5s, you know, uh, issues with tenants and that type of thing. It's rare that I typically take tenant disputes, but I have every once in a while, but not, it's not typical. Um, and how did I get started in real estate? Wow. Um, just when I was done university, I actually started working as a, uh, 
as a secretary at Keller Williams Complete at Hamilton. So I, I actually did the, uh, the call center thing. So I was actually answering the calls for the real estate agent. That's how I started. And I, the bug bit me around there. Cause you, you know, I, I was there when the brokerage was just like 30 or 40 people. And then I watched them grow it to about 135, 136 around there. And, you know, I saw all these investors coming in and out. I saw people that were making a, a decent, you know, chunk of change. And then also I saw people that were just working specifically so they didn't have to work ever again, you know, doing that when they were 25, 19, 35, 60, 70. And uh, the motivation of all those individuals was very intoxicating. Um, and I, I saw a lot of people end up purchasing quite a bit of real estate at Hamilton. And that was when the boom was just starting, right? So this is... 2015, 2014, around that area. So I, I remember month over, like year over year, we were seeing like 15% increase, 16, 20, 21% <laughs> increase in purchase prices. Um, and at that point in time, I knew sort of, okay, well, I need to figure out, figure way myself is going to fit in this sort of paradigm, right? Like I wanted to, I know I wanted to work in real estate, but there's a ton of real estate lawyers, there's a ton of, of real estate. I was like, okay, what am I going to do? inside this sort of pool. And I settled with law because I always did fall in love with that one early in my life. And it sort of just turned into this. Very cool. And then, so that's how you got started as, as a paralegal. And yeah. how did you get started, you know, before we get into the paralegal discussion, because I, I think originally mm -hmm. that's why I wanted to bring you on, but then I, you opened up this whole opportunity for me to ask you <laughs> questions about oh, yeah. investing Ethiopia, in yeah. Ethiopia. That is just, okay. So how did you, you really get started in, in investing and, and then just maybe share with us like what you have in terms of like strategies in a country that I don't think I've ever talked to anybody else that's investing in there. Yeah, it's, it, it's not, well, it's not a typical place to sort of consider, mm, yeah, let's go for there, right? <laughs> I, I, think, I think a lot of people just look at the news and just go, well, this is, this is not a good idea. Like this is, this is a terrible decision, right? But of course, if you can't, if you haven't recognized the last name, it's, you know, it, it is ethnic, right? So there is a reason why they have, you know, I, I do own property over there. It's mainly because uh, of family and where my family's from. I'm a first generation immigrant, right? So I was born here, but my family has close ties back home. Um, and it sort of fit nicely that the real estate, you know, as you move along in most places in the world, always increases. And it turns out it's a fantastic investment pretty much anywhere you go. Um, and the avenue to purchase property inside Ethiopia is fantastic because the government mostly pays you for the taxation. They'll, they'll pay you and guarantee your return pretty much, right? Depending on how much you are investing, right? So if you're placing several million, there's like the, the embassy, if you contact the Ethiopian embassy here in Canada, uh, they'll give you a lot of stock buyback options. They'll give you a lot of tax incentives. There's a lot of cheap labor. There's a lot of, you know, they can put up an apartment building for a fraction of the cost of you can do it here. Uh, you know, even just building like a, a duplex. Like if you wanted to build a five bedroom uh, villa, let's say, right? Uh, it would cost you roughly about thirty dollars to $40,000, something like that. And then you can rent it at roughly about $800 to $900 a month Canadian. So this is thirty or forty thousand Canadian to build, provided you have feet on the street and somebody that you trust. Uh, I, I'm guessing is a big piece and eight hundred, mm -hmm. eight hundred a month, rent. Yep. That's right, Canadian. Okay. Wow. Yeah. What, what well, about like the returns there? Because you were mentioning you've got properties, you've got buildings, you've got. I mean, like, like, are you able to share like? 
maybe a size of your portfolio? Like, are we talking about a hundred units or are we talking about? Uh, no, no, not, not, not that expansive, right? A lot of it is just land, right? A lot of it's agriculture. Okay. Um, but I would say roughly about uh, 80 units, 80, 90, something like that. Yeah. Um, most, most of it is, uh, most of it is, uh, tied up inside agriculture. A lot of it is, um, but the, the buildings that I do own, they're 12, 13, and then one 20 unit one. Um, and you know, the, the incentive is, is very, very high for someone to invest over there because they make it very difficult for you to, uh, to lose out on your capital. Very, very difficult. Right. But now that's sort of changed in the past couple of, uh, like as of right now, there, there's, an act, there's an active war, there's a civil war there. Right. So it's not really the best place. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest it right now. <laughs> Probably is not the best thing, but in the next couple coming years, you know, it's always uh, it's always a good investment to take a look at Africa, East Africa, South Africa, Morocco, those areas, Algeria, very, very good investment opportunities over there. And a lot of the time, the government there will likely incentivize you heavily to build and construct and continue to bring infrastructure into the area. Inherently speaking, it brings them a lot of money as well in taxation. So uh, in that first year, in those two years, they, they're they not going to uh, penalize you so heavily on capital gains and sale and all these other things. So hmm. you, you can make a fair bit amount of money looking at those places. Uh, I met an investor roughly about five or six months ago who has most of his investments in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip. So he owns quite a few apartment buildings over there. Um, and rent there is roughly about, uh, I think the average or median that his, his units were going for were anywhere between 800 to 900 um, you know, a month Canadian. And his purchase was 20,000, 30,000, around there. So. It just depends on where you're really looking, but people are sort of are, are just only having that mind to look at that Canada, East, you know, East Canada or America, that type of thing. They're not looking outside and overseas to really good areas where they could be investing in. And Africa has always been an up and coming place for quite a bit of time. And now it's sort of propelling itself to a point where, you know, it, it is quite a lucrative uh, uh, place to place. And, you know, Addis Ababa and Ethiopia, most of it is owned by Chinese investment firms like Blackfing and and, uh, and East, you know, places inside uh, Hong Kong. So, it, you know, everyone's running there, right? It's just they're not running there over here, right? So it's just that sort of cultural thing that's different. That, that, I mean, that's cool. I think I'll have to bring you in at a different time just to talk about your <laughs> but but before we, we wrap that that, yeah. second, that part of, of the podcast, like, like there's got to be, I don't know, maybe like some downside obviously right risk is one of them um, yeah 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 there's a lot economy of economy is another one like what do you think like we should be aware of before we we start looking as a canadian um especially when you're looking at africa you're looking at the high inflation rate not only that you're looking at the economy like a little thing can change right so ethiopia has a fantastic economy as of right now because of the new agriculture the new dam that they placed up a lot of the uh the government has propelled the economy in the past couple of years very nicely right so you're not looking at record high inflation. That being said, said, you know, Ethiopia has a lot of uh, cultural and ethnic issues as of right now, right? It is, you know, not too good right now, right? So a lot of the northern regions of Ethiopia are, are not in such a good way. Um, and because of that, the economy is taking a hit. So hopefully in the next few years, uh, we're not going to see that. But mostly, the, like, it's not... It's not labor that's the issue, right? It's not banking that's the issue. It's not corruption that's the issue. Well, there is corruption anywhere, but there's, there's not significant problems 
deterring me from telling anyone, oh, take a look at it, right? Except as of right now, because it's, uh, you know, I don't want to date the podcast, but as of right now, today's day would not be a good place to look at your investment, right? And that's mainly because of the, uh, the civil wars of the North. So, you know, if, if there's that much turmoil, you don't know what inherently is going to happen, which government is going to be there in the next couple of years and what your portfolio is going to look like, or if you're going to own it at all. Right. So like my family has a different sort of nature in it because we actually have family that's living on the land. Right. So it's a little bit different, but for a lot of people, uh, I, I know my, uh, one of my clients has a couple of properties in Ethiopia and, you know, he's predominantly inside uh, China as well. And, you know, the, the, the questions are always the same. Is, is, am I going to own my property or is it going to be there when I go down there? Right. right? Inherently speaking, like what, what's going to be there when I go down uh, to take a look at it? So th- there are a lot of risks in, in investing in other types of areas, but there's a lot of return. The higher risk, the higher the reward, right? Very least. And it sounds like you've got to be willing to potentially lose it all, depending on if there's a shift of government or, or whatnot. So you've got to be comfortable. It's kind of like in my, maybe the way that I look at it is like play money, right? You've got like yeah. your, like your assets that you're, you're creating for long-term wealth. And then if you've got like, you know, a few thousands to kind of just spend, maybe that's yeah. an option. But again, I would just say, if you guys are interested in investing in Ethiopia, just reach out to Andrew and get some <laughs> more details before you yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a lot of, cult, like a lot of it, like, and what I never understood is why a lot of investors, because the spirit and the entrepreneurial spirit that you see a lot of investors always there, but then as soon as it's a cultural shift, doesn't like, like you see a lot of people that were hesitant to invest in France or Italy. Right. But it, that's, a, that's a lot closer right, than looking at Algeria or Morocco or, not, or the Congo. Right. But at the same time, you see all these places that, you know, certainly need quite a significant amount of assistance. They need a uh, there's a large incentive to invest there or there's just uh, you know, the numbers just make sense and you can make your numbers wild. Right. And you can stretch your dollar significantly over that. And but for whatever reason, people don't view it as an as an option, but they should, because I'll tell you what, everyone inside the Eastern end of Hong Kong, everyone inside, you know, China is now looking at the, the, you know, they're they're building a massive apartment building. And if you look at the the building blocks, they look exactly what you would see inside Hong Kong. They're the exact same, same architectural firms, same architects, same blueprints, everything. And they're being sold the same way that they sell inside China. So someone is taking a consideration and it's certainly not the, the government's over there. It's the investors that are over there. So, you know, they're not looking at Cancun. They're not looking at Florida. They're not looking at anything like that. They're looking at something closer to home and Africa is really close to home. So I would recommend, you know, take a look at it. Um, the cultural and, and language barriers, what people just go, okay, what, like, how am I supposed to, how am I supposed to start this? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't want, like, what am I going to say? What am I going to speak? But once that hurdle's passed, and you can imagine money always transfers hands and, and someone's going to figure out how to speak to you. So, you know, it's, it is a, it is a solid investment to take a look at. Certainly so. Certainly so. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, just want to take a quick moment and introduce you to a key member of my power team. Dylan Suter is my realtor who's been working very hard to find me amazing deals And Dylan, I'm a big proponent in working with realtors that are investors. And Dylan is truly an investor. Welcome, Dylan. And thank you so much for being a sponsor. Tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Well, I want to first thank you for having us as a sponsor. We're really grateful to be working with you and all of the support you've given us over the past couple of years. So thank you so much for that. And our focus as Elevation Realty is to focus our attention primarily on real estate investors that are looking to replace their active income with a passive income and go enjoy what they like most, such as time with the family or up at the cottage, whatever it may be. So what we do is we focus our attention on creating a plan specific for each client, whether that is something they want to have five properties in five years and be able to sit on them for 10 years and then sell them and retire on the the equity. Or if they're looking to scale their portfolio and retire in the next 12 months, we can look at doing that as well through joint ventures or Airbnb short-term rentals. We can talk through buildings, buy, renovate, refinance, single family purchases, and the list goes on. That's awesome. Now, Dylan, if people wanted to reach out and get help from you, where can they go? They can check us out online at www.elevationrealty.ca, E-L-E-V-A-T-I-O-N, realty.ca, or they can email us at info at elevationrealty.ca, Give us a call or text at 905-592-4220 or check us out at The Right Club or other meetup groups that we're usually at as well. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dylan. It is awesome working with you as always. And now back to the show. And now back to the show. I think ultimately, like just like anywhere, you're building a team of trusted people and just you've got to have the right team in place in order to make the right moves. Because if you don't, you could be taken to the cleaners, but if you do, it can uh, open the path greatly. Awesome. Well, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. So I, I do want to um, start talking about, obviously, what you came on the show for, which is <laughs> uh, Paralegal 101 and what we need to know currently. So let, let's have a discussion around it. I mean, you cover Ontario. I, I think a lot of listeners... Uh, listening to this podcast are Ontario, not everybody, but many of them. Let's, let's maybe start there. Are there any new rules? Are there any new things that, that happened in the last couple years um, that we should be aware of as landlords? Yeah. So there, there's, there's quite a few, right? So bill 184 was the main one, right? So I know most of the listeners, like just just to start it off, if you're an investor or, or a landlord in Ontario, and I'm surprised at how many people don't know this, you need to actually read the RTA, the Residential Tenancy Act. You should have it. You should view it. It's the government body on anything you do. It's kind of like an HVAC guy not knowing about his licensing or myself not knowing about my own licensing. It just doesn't work. Or a doctor not knowing about the Gray's Anatomy. It makes no sense if you're a solo landlord, 300 units, 500 units, 600 units, doesn't matter. You need to know what the RTA is. You need to look at, take a look at it. You should, God forbid, you should actually go to take a look at the, the, you know, the landlord tenant board and see a, a hearing or two so you know what it looks like. Um, but the, the recent changes like Bill 184, new changes to the N12s and 13 forms, a lot of these acronyms I'll try to try to stay away from because not a lot of people may know them, but it's something called an N12, which is you know, a purchaser moving in or a landlord moving in, right? One of the major changes that they did recently is that now you have to disclose any single uh, application you've done for an N12 in the past two years. That's either with the N12 or with the N13, which is for renovation or demolishment. So you see a lot of these uh, investors that are doing 10, 15, 20, 30 flips inside a two-year span. Um, you, got, you got some issues because essentially speaking, they could dismiss your application, right? Uh, on the face of it. And you know, the board's now wanting to see how many of you have you done. 
as you, how many people, because essentially you're displacing quite a significant amount of people. Can I ask um, how, how, are, how do they ask for proof of that? Is that up to the landlord? Like if they've asked for many you know, people to leave through renovations, they got the forms, the landlord keeps the forms or do they have, are they organized enough? I don't know. That's the question. No, no. The, the government, so, they're not organized enough to know. Okay, so no, they're not. I'm not saying to do this, but technically they don't have like a data and file of all of the ones that you've done in the past, like unless it went to the courts. So this is where, like, because I get that question a lot. And this is, um, this is uh, the direct answer. They can look up the person that's on the application. So if the landlord is, you know, Sarah Larrabee, right? They can look up how many applications Sarah Larrabee has done, you know, and 13 and 12 and four, and everything will just sort of pop up, right? But, and this is how, you know, me personally, and if, and, you know, if, you, if you're an investor, you probably have seen your other colleagues do this, where they'll actually place in the landlord as a numbered company, or they'll place in the, the uh, as a corporation. So that predominantly is there done because of liability. You don't want to be holding on a significant tax liability. It could be a lot of legal liability, whatever it may be. And a lot of the time, uh, you use a new landlord for every single new property. As such, um, I don't believe you have to disclose on any of that. And this, this is still very brand new. So I have to explain uh, that the, the case law isn't really out on this just yet. But as of right now, no, you don't need to disclose on that specific landlord because every new corporation is a new entity as it is, right? Another so reason potentially to have a few corporations, just saying. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, that's the reason everyone does it, right? And people sort of get like, scared and they kind of pull back and play it so directly. But that's the reason why you see a lot of um, like investment firms having 30 of them or 50 of them, right? It's just this one is attached to this and this one is attached to this. It's largely there to protect liability, right? So there is a way of, you know, they say, you know, legal terms, piercing the corporate veil, right? And going directly for the directors for, you know, negligence and all these other things. But, you know, you, it's, it's significantly more difficult than just naming someone personally, right? There's a lot of investors that don't own their own personal assets. They only own directorship and certain things. And that's done specifically because of those things, right? And the new changes, like, so now there's something called an L10, which is you can now seek damages after the fact that a tenant has vacated the property, which was a big That's deal. That's, That's a very big deal. Because previously you would have to go to the landlord tenant, you would have to go to the small claims court. And that is, oh, one small claims court file can run you up $3,000, $4,000, depending. Um, and it just wasn't cost effective. If, if your tenant owes you two or $3,000, so you're taking, so you're now you're ballooning your expenses to, to just about more or half of that. What's the point of going to small claim? And then it takes a long time. It takes about two or three years, right? Depending on which district you're in. I have matters from 2019 that still haven't been heard yet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're, if you're lucky and you're inside Freelton or Beaverton, then, you know, your matter could be heard very quickly. But if you're in Eglinton or you're you know, downtown Toronto on 47 Shepherd and that, that, that courthouse, you could be heard a very, very long time from that. So, it didn't really give a lot of uh, it didn't give a lot of avenue for a lot of landlords to get their money back. And then as well, small claims court didn't like hearing a lot of these matters. They wanted the LTV to hear these matters for a specific reason. They're they're there for that reason. So the finally, you know, they brought up the L10, and you know, they've actually uh, they're now actually hearing those matters, which I have not done yet. I'm still looking for someone to do that with. I haven't done an L10 yet. It just came out September first. So just so, in English, though, like, how, how would that help a landlord being able to do that moving forward? Okay, so let's take an example, right? Let's say you own, uh, you own a property in Hamilton, and then you have a tenant uh, run off on rent, let's say six months, 
right? And let's say there's damages as well. Let's say they've you know, broken some tiles inside your, your bathroom. Well, now you can use the L10 and there's, if you look at the L10 certificate of service, because it's a specific document that proves how you serve this document, you can now serve it via email, via the you know, new address or forwarding address. You can do that now. Uh, and it allows you to seek damages specifically if the tenant has vacated the property. So in reality, it's not much. It, it didn't do anything except to close a, a loophole that sort of bothered a lot of landlords, which was as soon as that tenant left the property, they weren't a, they weren't a tenant. So then that means you have to sue them civilly inside small claims court. So this, it, although it sounds kind of ridiculous, it was just something that should have been done there many, many years ago. And it just wasn't there. So it closed the hole. So now you would be able to just seek damages as you regularly would as if someone was still living there, right? It's just and so how, how are you going to find where they're living now? Is that like you just like find their forward address? Is that what you recommend? It, it is, which goes into something I was, I was going to discuss with you because I, I find a lot of investors, you know, single or solo landlords are, are more guilty of this. If, you, if you're owning less than two or three units, I, I find that those individuals, they have, they have the most risk, but they do this the most, which I never understood why. It's preparation. The, the amount of information that most people take when they have a new tenant come in is, is next to nothing. Usually solo landlords are most guilty of this. What I typically do, what I advise is you get the, uh, the make and model of the car in the driveway, the driver's license, the plate. Like you'd be surprised how many landlords just don't even take the driver's license. And then this is the main thing. Don't take a bank draft. Don't take a certified check. Take a personal check for your first and last month's rent. If there's an issue with the personal check, that's, that's a red flag as it is, because it's not clear. You, you got your first issue. But take a photo of the first check that you ever received, because at the bottom of the check, there's the accounting information. And if you are in a position where you need to do a garnishment, you've got the information directly there. Can I, can I, it, challenge, can I challenge you on that? Because I've, yeah. like, I've always said, don't do the personal checks because it'll bounce. I guess two things is as long yeah. as you get the payment in your account before you give them the key. So it'd have to be done ahead of time. But um, mm -hmm. could you do like a bank draft or a certified check and ask them for a void check in addition? Would that be the same? You could. Okay. You could. But a lot of people have a lot of apprehension to doing that because they know the reason why the landlord's doing it. Right. So it, it's a bit of both. It's like finding the happy balance, mm -hmm. right. Of what, what you're able to risk and what you're able to gain for your, for your records to making sure that you're fine. So I certainly have no issue, right? That if you're, if you're taking a, a bank draft or even cash, and then you'd have a void check for another reason. But most of the time, most tenants aren't gonna provide you with a void check, right? So it's, it's a little bit of both. If you're able to get a void check, 100%, knock yourself out, that'll work perfectly just the same. But if you're taking, uh, I find a personal check, at the very least is, is more weight than that. So if you're, Chief concerned, take your first, you know, your first month's rent via, uh, you know, certified check or something like that, and then take the secondary check as last month through personal, right? And then you can you can keep that, but um, take the VIN of the car, take the uh, the driver's license, you know, at least two pieces of government ID, and that should be enough for us to actually get after the tenant if there's ever a garnishment situation or or there's a risk of of loss of, of, uh, of rent, we can actually recover those funds. And, you know, solo landlords, they're the worst at it. 
they, they really are. They don't take these things. And I don't know why. You'd be surprised at how many times I, I have someone in my office saying that the tenant owes thirteen dollars or $20,000 or, you know, fired a cannon out of the house. And there's, they, have no, they have nothing. I have a name, right? And I have their last known address, but I, that's it. There's no, it could be a fake name, could be an AKA, could be their middle name, could be something else. I have no clue. Um, and, you know, if you're, if you're also doing for employment, you know, get an employment letter, verify it, call the, uh, the, uh, the company yourself, right? And doing all these things will, you know, if you're in a situation where you actually need to recover funds, it's as simple as me sending a couple of documents out for you, opposed to hiring a private investigator to track this person down to seek your funds back. Yeah. So it's a lot there, right? And, and people just don't do that. And I, I don't know why. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, I just want to take a quick moment here and pause the podcast to introduce you to one of my favorite contractors, John from Blackjack Contracting Inc. And he has been serving the Niagara, Hamilton and Brantford areas for the past three years and has become the area's legal basement suite renovation specialist. He works with many investors that I know and some newer investors, some more experienced investors, and he converts single family homes into multiple units, as well as my favorite strategy, the Burr strategy. So he's well-versed in those as well to make sure that we can achieve the maximum value of the property and the maximum ARV. He has also completed over 100 units from Brantford to Niagara Falls, and everywhere in between as well. They do everything from permitting to the design to the final cleaning before listing our rentals for rent or for sale. And he's also a fully licensed electrical contractor. He's certified with ESA and he will take jobs of all sizes. So no job is too big. He's done a complete guts really from the ground up. So super impressed with his work and what he's been doing for fellow investors that I know as well. So if you wanted to reach out, his website is blackjack contractinginc.ca and you can ask him whatever questions you have you can also reach out to him instagram which is at blackjack contracting inc and like he says he knows that investing feels like the biggest gamble of our lives so when you have blackjack on your side the house always wins i will also add that there is currently a ban as of april 4th on new permits so he will still actively work to the law's extent and actively work with investors to get projects planned out for when the ban is lifted so that way you're not necessarily waiting and waiting and waiting so guys 100 percent, i recommend blackjack contracting i will say that finding the right contractor is sometimes a hassle and getting a good one that works with investors that understands the numbers is going to be critical in our success, especially when doing the birth strategy. And now back to the show. So, okay. So question for you. I mean, obviously you're sure. a paralegal is part of the service. Cause I, I'm a big proponent of like a thorough screening process. I have a five-step screening process. I share it, you know, mm-hmm. for, for a small fee where, where people can, can understand the, the steps that I use. And I've, you know, built it from trial and error over, over the many years. And, you know, so far it's, it's been working really well because I've had a lot of experiences that were close calls in the beginning. I'm like, I don't want to ever risk this again. Um, granted, stuff can still fall through the cracks the odd time. But as part of your services, do you offer like screening services and tenant placement or is that something that you don't cover? No, I do that quite a bit. Okay. Right. So, you know, we do a lot of tenant screening for uh, apartment buildings, uh, duplex, we do single family apartments, that kind of thing. Um, So we do 
provided them like a lease addendum. We help them, you know, we help the client go through the Ontario standard lease. We do a complete vetting of the tenant, et cetera. So we, we do all, all of that. And we, you know, we pull the credit report, take a look at uh, any past history. Like there, there's levels of digging that you can go to, you know, the, the, the highest being doing an FOI request, right? Which is a Freedom of Information Act request with the landlord and tenant board. And requesting those the tenant's name has ever come up on any application. It does take time, but you can do that, right? If you really wanted to protect your investment, if this was a, a very expensive property, like you're paying $4,000 a month and, you know, it's a very luxury building. Yeah, it would be worth very much so to do that. You know, my, um, my advice to anybody that's listening then is to hire you for tenant screening unless no. they want a thorough, thorough <laughs> process. Because I, I mean, so like, I mean, I can't speak for every single province. Like there's other provinces where you're not having to wait so many, so many months if you've got to issue, you know, a form yeah. of rent. But, but someplace like Ontario, similar to Ontario, where if you've got a tenant that plays the game, you're in for an unfortunate treat. You know, the, the cost to just hire somebody to do it thoroughly and to do all those checks, to me, it's, it's totally worth it. Yeah. And, and this, this is the, the way that you look at it. Cause I look at all these things on a cost effective basis, right? It's the same thing how I look at like uh, you know, renovation and demolition and N13s and that type of thing. So if you're, if you're, you've got your, your apartment and I'll start off the, the lowest, right? Let's go off of solo landlords. Let's go two units to say five, six, seven. So each one of those investments, you're maybe making a return a good return, $400 a month, $500 a month, let's say profit. One tenant can take away thirteen dollars to $14,000 of profit on one go. You have six matters or six properties. I track it and what we sort of see is that for every six properties, you have one matter per year on my end. That's how I value you. So when a, when a law office looks at you and says, okay, so how much business am I supposed to get from this investor, right? How does it sort of look like? I can guarantee with six properties, I get one a year. So from one a year, I can say, okay, you know, I take charge an application for X amount of dollars and I can rank sort of how much that investor is likely going to bring into a law office. That's just sort of how sort of people look at it. The more units you have, the more issues you have, et cetera, and et cetera. So if you've got a property that's worth 400, 500, 600,000 million dollars, but you're skirting away the proper forms of protecting that investment, it makes no sense. A simple check or a simple investment uh, specialist or a you know, law firm or, or us or whoever that you decided to use um, can do a significant amount of risk mitigation on those things. It's kind of like buying a Ferrari and then not putting good oil in it. it makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Okay. No, so well, you, thanks. You want to do those things. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, it, it's, it's obviously super important to, uh, to vet. And so just to go back to Bill 184, though, so you, sure. you talked about some of the changes. Can you just share what Bill 184 is when it was, when it was coming into play? And then if there's anything else that we should know about before we move on to uh, the next part? Yeah, sure. So Bill 184, well, it's actually, it's, it's been in the wings for a very, very long time. I think I first heard about it a year ago. I think it was like in December when I first heard about it. And then I went to bill ratification, et cetera, Queens Park, argue, argue back and forth, argue, argue, argue. And then it finally actually had held um, and had some actual teeth inside September 1st. That's when it actually sort of came out. So we're now, you know, about a month and a half away from then. And now we're actually seeing practice being moved forward, right? So we're seeing, a, a, we've also seen, I've personally, this is my personal opinion, uh, maybe a lot of other practitioners, lawyers, paralegals uh, would dissent, but I've seen the board get a lot more strict in the past couple of weeks, significantly so. It's taking harder to win these, these, these matters. These applications are getting very, very difficult. 
even for simple ones where you would think that it would be easy enough, they're getting a lot more exhausting, a lot more work, and it's taking a lot more time. And the reason why is the fastidiousness of the board has grown quite a significant amount. Um, and Bill 184 has some reasons to do with that, you know, going too technical on it or, or not too technical on it, or rather, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of uh, the changes to those applications, the main ones and the covenants attached to that. So the penalties now for bad faith are higher, right? So before it was like $20,000, $30,000. So bad faith, meaning higher. if you like evict based on you moving in or you don't move in, move in, or you want to do rent evictions and, you know, you just want to essentially increase the rents higher. So I just want to conf- like, yeah. there's other examples, but I just want to make sure everybody's on the same page when they're saying, okay, well, what does bad, bad faith mean? Yeah. So you, you do one thing or you say you're going to do one thing and do something else completely. And this is the thing. It doesn't mean that it was with malicious intent, right? People don't really understand what bad faith is. So let's say you, um, you purchase a property and you're, you've had the, you do the N12 process. You do the declaration, all that stuff. You purchase it. You do on a purchase agreement. You say the purchaser is taking possession of the property. And you place yourself, let's say it's Andrew Chibetta, is moving into this property. Well, what happens when your brother-in-law moves in instead? Because you've gone to Cancun or you've, you know, you got a car accident, you're living with your mother, mm-hmm. right? That's immediately in bad faith, just like that. And people would think, well, that's kind of innocent. Like I, I still moved, it's my family, I, I've moved in. It wasn't you, bad faith, simple as that. Mm. So there's a, there's a lot of things to consider. So, and what you need to remember is, it's to the letter. So if you stated that it's this exactly, then it must be this exactly. For how, right? long, have, for how long though do you have to have that exactly there for? Is there that timeline or that hasn't been? Period done? of one year. One, one year, year, one day. Yeah. In good faith, a period of one year, one day. So that's a purchaser. That's a uh, current owner, et cetera. It's one year. So if you say you move in, you're moving in for that one year, one day. Um, and yeah, the ramifications if you get caught, it's quite significant quite significant. I haven't seen case law in regards to the high amount because you see the fines all over the internet. It's, you know, quite advertised quite heavily, but I have not seen someone get hit with a fine like that yet. I'm seeing a lot less than that. What was the fine before versus now? Can we share that? Um, I think it was like, was it 50 grand or something now? And if you're a business, it's like something crazy. Yeah. If it's your, if you're a corporation or business, it's like over a (laughs) hundred, it's like $200,000. It's a significant amount of money. Don't quote me on the exact amount, but it's whatever number you think is higher than that. And it's, it's a catastrophic amount. Do not do it. But if you have a corporation or anything else, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot harder, but you, you see a, you see a a check and balance, right? Mm -hmm. The landlord's got the L10. Right. So, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of landlords were advocating very heavily for having an option of doing that. Um, and then now you'll also see Zoom hearings and you're seeing a lot more applications going in now. So, you know, L1 applications are now moving a lot quicker. But L- L1, quicker with an after- can we, can we just payment of rent. L- L1 is just, just so everyone's on sure. the same page? Yeah. Yeah. So, non payment of rent. So, uh, an L1 application typically goes with something called an N4, which is your standard form if the tenant does not pay you. Um, and we're seeing a lot of uh, hearings now that are in a docket. So you go in at 9 a.m. and there's 93 of those applications all at the same time. So you have 93 properties and 93 tenants and 93 landlords, 93 practitioners all in one room. So there's well over 150 people in that room and two judges or adjudicators. And they got to get through all 93. 
before the target is ended. So it's it's a lot. It's a it's a thing to see because those those poor moderators are quite fast at getting people where they need to go. But it's a lot of it's a lot of work. Um, and even doing a simple L one, it says nine a.m. Book your whole day off. Hmm. Could be nine a.m. Could be twelve. Could be one. Could be four. You have no clue when it's going to be heard. So that's why you see a lot of paralegals charging a lot more these days because you don't know how long your your court application is going to be. I could be there from nine a.m. I could be there till four. And then that's why people say, Andrew, I couldn't get a hold of you. It's called, I was supposed to be at court at 9 a.m. And I'm now I'm done at 3 p.m. So you don't know where you're going to be done in the docket, right? Yeah. So what's, what's, sorry, what's your thought about just because you were talking about like, you know, 93 cases or whatnot. Like, do you prefer in person? Do you prefer on Zoom? And then, you know. Oh, I'm never going back. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I very much prefer, prefer Zoom. Inherently speaking, it's faster over an average, mm-hmm. right? So if I, if I have a, a you know, large investor that has, I have one that has about 30 matters with our office. Um, inherently speaking, it's a lot faster, significantly faster. So, and, you know, it saves me the position of going into, into a hearing room and then, you know, getting back to my office and these other things. For the, just for the professional sense of it, it's a lot easier. But there's a lot of things to be said about doing submissions when someone is not physically in front of you. If you're, if you're doing cross-examination, which is I'm questioning a tenant, you know, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Why, why is there presence of alcohol to the property? Why is there presence of drugs in the property? It's different than doing it via a Zoom hearing, right? There's a lot, a lot of things to be said, but you cannot see the tenant or you can't see the landlord or you can't see the practitioner because it allows us a little bit more longevity. It's not just about wearing a suit or a tie or anything like that, but there's a lot of things that are happening around the practitioner. You may not see an assistant running around getting pieces of paper, like another practitioner assisting. You know, there may be one person in submissions, but there may be an army of people behind that you cannot see. But previously you didn't have that, mm-hmm. right? I didn't have another, another paralegal, another secretary, another someone behind me. But now you do. You have multiple people around you doing submissions and assisting. And just because the camera is not on, you can have people throw you notes. This section, this is the section you need to know. Oh, someone's doing a submission on this. Where's the evidence? Here's the evidence, Andrew. Here's this, here's that. And it makes things run a lot faster. So now when I have five matters, I'm actually prepped for five and I can do five. Okay. But you know, instead it was different, right? And, and landlords are now going to see that as well, but they're able to get a lot more things done very quickly. So. That's awesome. You know, and, and for fun, I, this was on, I don't know, I can't remember which random Tuesday or, or Wednesday or whenever I went on a few of the calls and just watched, right. And as an oh, yeah. and you can do that. And I would say if you haven't looked in, 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 you know, maybe spent an hour on some of these zoom uh, hearings, I think it's just a, a good part of your learning experience as a landlord. And uh you know, anybody can access and they just dub you as an observer and you just kind of stay there and you see what the course that the cases are. And I thought it was like an interesting experience and, and you can actually, I don't know, I mean, get some, uh, get some insights on uh, how to be a better landlord. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like honestly, you should, you should definitely go to the, L- the LTB and definitely take a look at it. Definitely take a look at uh, the application, certainly into the L1 block. My, my advice to every landlord is that you should know how to do an L1 application yourself, non-payment event. You should be able to know how to do that you know, top down because that, that's a very simple application. It's the only one I tell people like, eh, you know, if you've if you got a head on yourself, you, you could do it, you're, you're on your own. You, you could, right? Um, 
But the other ones, the L2s, the, the other applications, I never, ever suggest someone do them on their own. I always have to consult with a lawyer or a legal representative. But for an L1, a lot of people could do it on their own, quite a significant amount, actually. So seeing how people get through that and how self-represented people, property managers, all these other things that are going through these applications, you need to know how to do it yourself. You really do. Mm-hmm. Because if you have multiple units, you may not be able to afford a practitioner on every single one. Right. So it's just, it's, it's more of a cost effectiveness thing. Uh, as much as I love everyone's business, at the end of the day, you need to look at what is the most cost effective for yourself. And you should know how to do those L1 applications on your own, knowing what like uh, terminating errors are or, or fatal flaws are, as they're, as they're called these days, um, which is you know, something as simple as you mistaking the tenant's name, forgetting the postal code. Or not right, putting or, the right unit on or something. Or yeah. putting the right unit or like something simple as that. If it is not 100% correct, it is not correct. Out it goes. That's it. So, so one of the things I would probably recommend then is fill it out, hire you and, you know, for blocks of hours as a, a yeah. you know, retainer and have you take a quick look at it. So that person knows that they filled it out right before they, they submit it. And, you know, at least the first time they do it with you moving forward, I think they're going to figure it out how to do it. I think, you know, that's probably a good recommendation because like you said, those fatal errors means your whole case could be dismissed and you got to start all over again. And if your tenant's not paying and you've already, you know, spent two months, for example, going back and forth with them, hopefully not the case, you know, and, and things get dismissed, then you're, you're going back and starting from square one again. That would be very sad. Okay. So this podcast is going and flying by. I feel like we could talk for hours quickly because I, I think this was a, a really good insightful conversation that we had together because I have a lot of midterm, short-term Airbnbs and, and different opportunities. I would say at this point, half my portfolio is, is short and midterm and the other half is, is long-term and I love the short and midterm. What are some things that we need to know as landlords that might've changed recently? Yeah. So there's a recent case decision. Like if you're running like those vacation rentals, those quick ones, the, the VRBO, I think that's one of them. And then there's, there's Airbnb and Airbnb the biggest one, right? There's there's recent case law that the the LTPS have disseminated with it. It's that if there is a, if you're running an Airbnb or short term rental and it's, and you're having the lease set through that company it is now considered a commercial lease, which means that the act doesn't apply, which means it's 30 days and then the tenant has to vacate. No notice, nothing. Just as simple as you notifying them that they have to vacate. It's now a commercial tenancy. That's it. Now, I don't actually believe it's held under the Commercial Tenancies Act, but it's just not under the Residential Tenancies Act, which is the main thing that you want. So there's a case decision, which is, I always provide to every landlord that calls me. And so basically, basically reach out to Andrew if yeah. you need this, this piece of paper, because it is going to be critical yeah. in making things work in our favor, should something yeah, happen. Yeah, you need to have it, right? <laughs> yeah, so because there's a mandate through every police department in Ontario, which is they will not remove a tenant. They will not, right? Because these things can be very convoluted. However, if you explain that this is a, a short-term rental, here is the case decision. This is what you're going off of. Take this. They'll remove the tenant, right? So you see all these people, like if you look up it on Google, that there was one famous one in Toronto where a tenant was living there with no payment of rent off of the Airbnb squatting situation. And they were there for six months. And the owner had lost well over $30,000 in, uh, in, uh, in rent. Well, with this new decision, that's not possible, right? You just provide that over to the, to the constables. This is what it is. And they'll remove the tenant almost immediately. And I've done that multiple times, 
So I, I would say like, that's also the proof, right? So like you've done it, you've showed, you've had a tenant that, you know, stayed, whether it was Airbnb, VRBO or, or whatnot, they book through the platform. I think that's what you said is important yeah. through the platform, yeah. or you've got to have some kind of occupancy agreement that specifically states that section 5A residential tenancies act is not part of this contract. Um, and have that piece of paper that you referred to that was case law as of December, 2020. And essentially you've removed people, I guess the police come, I mean, maybe we'll just walk us through yeah. the scenario. like the police come you show them that and they remove the tenant. Yeah. So what you do is you call the non-emergency. Well, just first, don't take this as legal advice because at the end of the day, there's a lot of things to consider in regards call, to- Call time. Andrew for sure for like- Yeah, call, case, yeah. Like, call for general, one, hopefully yeah. me, yeah. So, and just in general with, with sort of all of this, you, you want to make sure that everything's done correctly. So basically what you, you would do is you would call the non-emergency line. You'd advise them that you're the landlord. This is the property. You have a squatter in the property. Someone that has rented it via Airbnb is not refusing police, right? They, they will put you on something called the board, right? Which is just basically a log of the call. They don't actually don't tell you when they're coming. They just sort of show up and you got to be there within 15 minutes, right? Because they have a multitude of calls. They go off the most urgent ones first. Once you receive this call, you go down to the property, have that case law in your hand. You provide it to the constable and say, this is the unit. This is what I want to do. This is the information for the Airbnb app. Here's where they're supposed to be. Now covered under it's not covered under the Residential Tenancies Act. This would be no different as if someone was in a motel or hotel that stayed past check-in. No different. It just happens to be that it's a house. That's all it is. So this sort of made the uh, uh, these short-term rentals very conforming to motels and hotels. Like very close to it now. So they'll enter the property. They'll tell them to leave. That's it. Simple as that. And if they don't, there's ramifications for that. Quite a significant one. So. They'll, they'll remove the tenant likely by, by, you know, you know, some sort of way, but they'll remove them and just the way it is. Cool. How, how many of these have you done just out of, out of curiosity? 25, 26, okay. something like that. Yeah. Quite a, since, quite a few. since the, since the case law passed in December, 2020. Okay. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that's, that's good, right? Because oftentimes I get the question like, well, what if my Airbnb tenant doesn't leave? I mean, it's never knock on wood. It's never happened to me, but I think this was one of my conversations with you. I still want to know before problems happen, if this happens or this doesn't happen in this case, our conversation was if a tenant doesn't leave, then like, are they, are we going through the the LTV? Uh, And it's it's going to take like 12 months to to get them out. So um, it's petrifying. It's scary, right? You're, you, you only own one property. It's a vacation spot. And then you only have from what spring to the, the winter months, and then you can't rent it again. And then you have someone in there and you've lost an entire season worth of money and you still have a mortgage throughout that period. Yeah. It's petrifying. It's really scary. And it can make people lose their properties and it can make them lose their own homes. And you can get a bankruptcy. So sure. it's very important. You need to hold on to these things. They're, and I think, you know, I think one, one of the things I was thinking of, because I have a lot of friends that do do this and I'm like, well, you know, could something happen is, is off season, they rent it for six months, what through the platform or, or whatnot. And then starting in May, this is when the high season happens. Like we want to make sure that those people are gone. So as long as it's say, so just to confirm, as long as it's, it's on a separate, you know, occupancy agreement or through the Airbnb uh, platform or VRBO and you have that form, then you're saying that we're good. Yeah. I would say like my, my, where I lie in, in, yeah. in the sense of this is it should be on the platform. It should oh, be the on the Airbnb. Okay. It should be on VRBO. I even still, I don't like saying put it on a separate agreement okay. because inherently speaking, 
things get more muddy when that's the case. I always advocate if you want to make it more concrete, make it more sure, always place it on VRBO, always place it on Airbnb. It's a small price to pay for the large, large potential disaster that you could have. And we, I always pretend you're in the worst case scenario, you're going to lose everything. That's the way I start my, my job. And I go over from the worst to the best case scenario because usually speaking, it goes to the worst quite quickly. So I, I go off that basis. And what I would always advocate and always tell my clients is you're always on the platform. This is what you bought it for. This is what it is. Simple as that. Don't ever move it off of that. Perfect. The numbers don't work. Switch it up. So that you, ha- you have it, guys. Stay on the platforms and they were going to protect you. Um, so, I mean, I can't believe it's, it's already been like 45 <laughs> minutes of us talking. But I'll tell you, I, you know, I have to have you come back and, and share more because I, I, I also wanted to dig into, you know, just some of the things that we should be doing as landlords in general, not necessarily Ontario uh, specifically, but also, you know, just some of the like horror stories or the stories that, you know, yeah, yeah. I want to hear. So, <laughs> hey, just real quick, can you do like a little horror story, like just like one minute or less type of thing just for entertainment? Yeah, I have one from like about a week ago. That, okay. Uh, I, I received just recently this, you know, the ability to speak about it from either party, but um, it was a, uh, it's a property near Cannon Street here in Hamilton that's very close to uh, the Ivor Wind Stadium. This was a couple, this was actually, didn't happen recently, it was like a year ago, but this was when Ivor Wind was replacing some of their turf and, uh, you know, all of a sudden there was just, I got a call from one of my clients go take a look at a property because there was a lot of police activity at the place. And uh, the landlord had gotten a call that uh, the police were at the property and the neighbors were questioning why they were there so often. It was four or five, six times a day, you know, a day. And it was just on one day, which was very bizarre. Um, so I spoke with the tenant and we sort of realized that the tenant had cut out large pieces of uh, football turf from the stadium and had just replaced all the brand new landscaping at the property. So it was like well over $4,000 of brand new landscaping in the backyard. And it was all filled with AstroTurf now. Wow. And the reason why was because the tenant had stated they just didn't want to cut the grass. Yeah. Well, there you, there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And I'm sure yeah. money that you can, you can pull off. Like I am, you know, I think you, you got chased with a machete at some point and just like, you're, yeah, you're out no. there, you know, fighting yeah. danger. <laughs> dodging machetes uh, yeah i had an axe thrown at me recently I've, I've had way too much amount of feces thrown at me like just it just a copious amount of it but you know all in the days work it's quite fun <laughs> <laughs> never, never a dull moment eh? yeah yeah oh, least, yeah so okay so the next part of the podcast is our lightning round it's gonna be quick questions with quick answers you're gonna give me the first answer that comes to mind are you ready good shoot This week's lightning round is brought to you by Megan Chomut. If you're looking for a great financial advisor to add to your team who actually understands and incorporates real estate as part of your overall plan and gets your money working for you, you can reach out to Megan at meganchomut.com forward slash Sarah. And also she's offering for my podcast listeners to provide you with a free customized individualized 90 day game plan for getting ahead. So to get that, go to meganchomut.com forward slash Sarah. That's M-E-G-H-A-N dot com forward slash Sarah. And now back to the show. All right. Number one, what is your favorite real estate investing book? Never split the difference. Okay. Good book. Number two, doesn't have to be real estate specific, but do you have a favorite podcast? Uh, favorite podcast, Joe Rogan Experience. Favorite one. Okay. Awesome. Number three, what do you do for fun? 
I learned languages. Rosetta Stone. Oh, yeah? yeah. How many languages do you know? Mm, five right now. Which ones? Uh, <laughs> I'm conversational. So English, a little bit of French, a little bit of Spanish, uh, some Mandarin, and then uh, I'm trying German right now. So oh, cool. conversational German, yeah. Wow. Awesome. Very interesting. Number four, if you lost all of your money and your assets tomorrow, how would you start again? Be a contractor. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was a random, <laughs> random answer. <I> was like, <laughs> all right, cool. And number five, if somebody has $50,000 and they want to get started in investing in real estate, how would you recommend they do that? Investing in real estate, $50,000. I would say look out east, look at St. John, look at where your money can actually make you well, way more than you think it would. Uh, look at, at uh, look overseas, look, you know, look at Africa, look, look where your money can actually make you a lot. If that doesn't work, look at cryptocurrency. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks for playing the lightning round. So Andrew, where can the listeners reach out, find out more about you, either hire you for the retainer, get your landlord addendum, which is like awesome, by the way, you've got a bunch of pages to the standard lease addendum. I think you should charge for them regardless, but I think that, that part is free for now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so your free lease addendum and anything else, where is the best way to reach you? Yeah. So you can reach me at uh, 289-339-1311, which is our office number. Or you can send me an email at andrew at chubettalegalservices.com. It's a unique last name. So if you look up Andrew Chubetta, I'm sure it'll come up. All right. Can you pronounce, can you spell out your last name? Yeah. C is in Charlie, H is in hotel, O is in Oscar, U is in uniform, B is in beta, E is in echo, T is in tango, A is in alpha. Amazing. Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show. It was uh, a pleasure as always talking to you. I always learn so much and uh, <laughs> we'll have to have you back. Thanks again. Absolutely. Have a good day. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons and at the time they all seemed very valid, but as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away and eventually only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked. And also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step -step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And, you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.